This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. I said hey everybody, and I don't remember if I always say that. And you then typic- I you say hey everybody a lot. Yeah, you're like a YouTuber who's like hey guys, like comment, subscribe. Yeah, it's Book Boy four twenty here with another book. <laughs> Man, what if I became a booktuber? Yo, if we have any booktubers listening, I have ever relied on the work that you do for some of my research. So, like, hit us up. Let me know if you're a booktuber. Are we just like, are we looking to horn in on their turf? Or no, I want to meet them. Wanna, I want to know, know them. more about them. Okay. <laughs> I have, I have found... become part of the community. Well, uh, I don't know if I have time to be part of the community. I would like to honor the community, maybe. Because we're a book podcast, if I didn't mention. We're a book podcast. Yeah, every week one of us reads a book that the other one's never read before, and we tell the other person about it. This week we're changing it up a little bit, partly because we want it to, I don't know, we're planning like a little bit of a lighter February early yep. on, so we can have a heavy one later. <laughs> and then also, well, because we put the Barack Hussein Obama book on the yes. list. And I don't know if you've cracked the spine on that bad boy, but it's a big my, one. Man, my man is not... Does not write short. No. <laughs> my, so, man, my man writes long. <laughs> to, uh, tune in at the end of this episode. We'll give you the rundown of our February schedule. But yeah, we wanted to come into February a little bit lighter in volume of reading. Yeah. And then I also have a cold that Henry gave me. So that's if my instrument sounds a little duller than it usually does. Or maybe like a registered lower or so than it normally does. Yeah. That's why. I'm all hopped up on store brand day quill yeah and half a beer so let's go for it let's, let's go read for some books. it we have uh two short stories for you today um i will tell andrew about the comet by wb web du bois and andrew what will you tell me about i'm gonna tell you about a uh, woeful tales from my goal which is from the short, short story collection changing planes by ursula k Le Guin. Excellent. So we've done these short story episodes before. Um, Isn't it short story week or something? That that's I called it short story week. It's not. Oh, a I national thought it was holiday. like I thought. Okay, I saw that you did that. I was like, oh, hey, it's short story week. Cool, an excuse to read short stories. But no, you're just making it up, huh? I wanted making to... a Mr. Earth's Kayla Gwynn over here just making up stories. <laughs> yeah, that's me. I'm a short story people. writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's fun for us to do like short story collections, but sometimes it's also a cool opportunity to encounter a writer in a different mode. I discovered this Du Bois story kind of just randomly clicking through Wikipedia for other reasons and then was like, I did not know that this guy writes wrote fiction at all, let alone a short story that one might describe as an early example of sci-fi. Uh-huh. So that was kind of neat. And then when we were building the February schedule, we figured we would find another short story, which Andrew would tell me about later. So 
What do you know about Mr. Du Bois, Andrew? What's your like what's your frame of reference for him and his work? Like not a lot, honestly. Okay. Like not as much as I should. I know that he was sort of a black activist, and that's about as much as I about as far as I go. Sure, 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 sure. Um William Edward Burghart Du Bois, born in eighteen sixty eight, passed away in nineteen sixty three. Born in Massachusetts, um, I believe there was there was like a population of uh, like he went to an integrated local school, which even in Massachusetts, what does that mean? I don't know at the time in the late nineteenth century. But he went down to Fisk for college in Nashville, Tennessee, where he firsthand experienced the realities of Jim Crow. Um, he studied at a couple of different places after that, including getting his doctorate at Harvard. I think he was the first African-American to get his doctorate at Harvard. And then he went to Berlin for additional schooling. I found a quote from a book about Du Bois by Alden Morris. Um, du Bois says, I found myself on the outside of the American world looking in. With me were white folk, uh, students, acquaintances, acquaintances, teachers who viewed the scene with me, they did not always pause to regard me as a curiosity or something subhuman. I was just a man of the somewhat privileged student rank with whom they were glad to meet and talk over the world, particularly the part of the world whence I came. I feel like we've heard that uh, particular personal experience from other authors when they travel outside of America. Yeah, and they are. It's, a, it's quite a place. America is. Uh huh. Um, du Bois taught in Ohio. He did a research gig here in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, at the University of Pennsylvania. He did a social. He was an early like um, prominent socio- sociologist. Like he did a lot of research and work in that field, kind of in its nascency, if that's a word that I didn't just make up right now. No, it sounds right. Um, it was the, the field was nascent. Yes. It was in nascency. <laughs> I just created a kind of grammatical cul-de-sac for myself. Grammatical <laughs> just... might be a made-up word, too. Well, I don't know. Dang it. <laughs> You're the one on cold medicine. Um, <laughs> and he did a sociological study of Philadelphia's black neighborhoods. It was published later as the Philadelphia Negro. Um, it explored kind of the causes and the results of segregation here in the city. We have a very segregated city here still, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you and I live on in South Philadelphia on separate sides of Broad Street, like yeah. a mile apart, and they're very different. They are incredibly different, and it's, yeah. it's even more different when you go further north and further west. Yeah, I, I could go as, like a mile north or a mile east from where I am, not even a mile, and just dramatically different neighborhoods divided by like those arterial, like Broad and Washington yep. are the big ones, but... Yep. Um, so after that, he moves to Atlanta University, um, which is where he, he, I don't know exactly the timeline he does. We're not going to cover everything he did. I just want to set some good kind of background for his work because he's not primarily known as a fiction writer. So coming into this this is what I found interesting. Um, he was part of the Niagara movement, which was a collection of, um, black academics and and folks who were advocating for social change. And it was somewhat, if not directly opposed to the work Booker T. Washington was doing, um, which I think Du Bois is credited with calling it the Atlantic Compromise. It was a negotiation of like post-Reconstruction era South that said like, 
black folks would accept white political rule in exchange for um, greater form, you know, opportunities of education and kind of a a bit of it's accommodationism is another term that Du Bois used for it. Like, let's come to some sort of truce. Um, du Bois also is a proponent of what gets called the talented tenth idea, where he is arguing for. Um, or at least saying that social change would come about from like the elites of black society um, that could better advocate for change. And um, I don't know enough about how that, you know, theory has been critiqued over the years, but I, that's, that is what I remember of Du Bois from like high school history class. Yeah. Um, he did. I also, I think I, I was, I was aware that he was one of the founders of the NAACP as well. He was, yes. Um, so he gets into that in 1909 and 1910. He was the editor of their monthly magazine. He did a lot of work publicizing data on the ongoing practices of lynching in America, um, both like empirical data and anecdotal data. Um, they fought to ban Birth of a Nation when it when it was released, and they were unsuccessful. I mean, why are they trying to censor these people's speech? Is huh. my question. I'm just out here asking questions. Yeah, that's a good question. If you've ever heard of the movie, you might know why. <laughs> yeah, I'm just asking questions, though. I mean, sure. like, the, surely the like more speech is better, right? Yeah, I've heard that someone ever said that. Mm. Um, but yes. Their unsuccessful I'm, campaign. I know a birth of a nation. Is. Yeah, I'm, I being, I'm being facetious. Yeah, um, and the, sad a little bit. <laughs> yes, uh, the unsuccessful campaign to ban it did draw additional support to the NAACP. Um, in 1903, just before that, uh, he published "The Souls of Black Folk," a collection of 14 essays, where he really digs into what he calls the problem of the color line. He addresses the unique perspective of be, of being both. American and black at the time. And he was also someone who advocated for like pan-African issues. Um, he attended a lot of international conferences on folks descended from um, various regions in Africa and fighting for independence of, uh, you know, colonial states in Africa. Um, and then his big work, Black Reconstruction in America in 1935, uh, is about the like why reconstruction failed and critiques the white historical record of why it failed. Sure. Um, and then he goes on to become a delegate to the UN. He is a lifelong kind of anti-war advocate. He does get mixed up in the McCarthy hearings because <laughs> he was I a mean, socialist. Who, who didn't? Well, he had I feel socialist like... leanings. Yeah. Yes, of course. Go ahead. <laughs> who if didn't? You were cool, if you were cool in that era, you got <laughs> you got caught up by the McCarthy hearings. Yeah. The McCarthyism was really just like, if you're not a square, we're looking into you. Yeah. Uh-huh. And also more violent things. But really it starts if you're a, if you're not a square, we're looking into you. The fir the first question at all the hearings is can you hang? <laughs> Cuz if is you yes. if you you're can hang, I feel like maybe you're a member of the Communist Party. Um he was working for a an organization that was working on a nuclear ban petition and they called him in. And apparently the, the case got dismissed because the defense attorney said Einstein was willing to be a witness. And they were like, well, I don't, me. I don't think we're going to prosecute you. 
sir, if Dr. Huh. Einstein is going to show up in support of you. Um, and then late in life, he traveled to Ghana. Uh, that was where he passed away. He had had some, the, the American government was treating him poorly with regards to his passport. Um, so he took up citizenship in Ghana and then passed away there in 1963, a year before the Civil Rights Act was passed, um, which he had obviously worked very hard to bring about. Um, this story, The Comet, if I didn't say that clearly up top, was written in 1920 as part of a collection called Darkwater Voices from Within the Veil, which is a collection of essays, spirituals, poems, et al., some of which had been published in previous uh, like magazines like The Atlantic and other places. It and sounds like the name of a like a spooky audio, like a narrative audio podcast. It, it's a great like a name for anything, sort of. literally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and like Voices from Within the Veil is cool. Like, I don't know. It's a great name for anything. Um, mm-hmm. It is grouped with Dusk of Dawn and a, solilo- uh, a soliloquy on viewing my life from the last decade of its first century, which are two of his other autobiographical texts. Um, and a lot of the writing in the book is about like labor and inequities in these other stories and essays. Um, there's in the, I think it's the postscript. He says something like the shadow of hunger in a world which never needs to be hungry drives us to war and murder and hate. But why does hunger shadow so vast a mass of men manifestly because in the great organizing of men for work, a few of the participants come out with more wealth than they can possibly use while a vast number emerge with less than can decently support life. You wonder why he might have gotten called in during the McCarthy hearings when you hear that text, huh? Yeah. He can hang. The boys can hang. (laughs) Du Bois are back in town Um, And then this story also (laughs) God Every episode there's one thing that I say That you try not to respond to And people on Twitter notice They always say I can't believe Craig didn't respond to that thing Andrew said I can believe it It's not that he didn't hear it You should get called in by McCarthy for that one (laughs) Um, And then this this story was Could you you tell us everything you know about Thin Lizzy (laughs) Sounds like a name that would get brought up in a trial. Yeah. Um, it was reprinted in a 2000 anthology, Dark Matter, the anthology of science fiction, fantasy, and speculative fiction by black writers. Um, and yeah, we've just been interested. I don't know. I'm going to read the other uh, Broken Earth book this month. I was thinking of Children of Blood and Bone earlier. Um, and just also thinking about early sci-fi. I was struck by the fact that this was like, Build as a sci-fi story in the in 1920. Uh, spoiler alert: the Goodreads reviews that are from sci-fi fans are not impressed because <laughs> this book is mostly about making a point about uh, racism and whether or not we can transcend it. And the sci-fi part is that there's a comet involved. <laughs> So I was going to say like, man, I hate when my sci-fi has a political point to make that that's the worst sci-fi is when it's usually the worst using futuristic and alien themes to, to comment on real world (laughs) problems. Hate it. Uh, So I'm going to give you a rundown of the story, Andrew, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about like the two standout themes, I guess. Stop me along the way when you find something interesting. 
Okay. Or if you want to say something that Joe McCarthy would not be happy about again. I mean, probably most of the things I have to say are things Joe McCarthy would love. That's a good point. I don't know the guy, but he didn't seem cool. Yeah, that's true. The opening lines of this story, he stood a moment on the steps of the bank watching the human river that swirled down Broadway. Few noticed him, few ever noticed him, save in a way that stung. He was outside the world, quote, nothing, as he said bitterly. Bits of the words of the walkers came to him. That outside the world bit is also in the Du Bois postscript. He talks about being in the world, not of the world. And it also reminds me of Ralph Ellison's like Invisible Man, this the the white world, you know, the way that it marginalizes people sure. both collectively yeah. and individually. But we are learning that there is a comet coming. It's not Haley's comet. It's just some other comet. I don't know. <laughs> It's not the only comet. Um, just because everybody, just because that's the one everybody knows, doesn't yes. mean every comet is Haley's comet. Uh, people have seen it, and we're expected to be in the tail of the comet, is what people are saying. I don't really know what that means, except that the the comet's going to come by Earth, and I don't think anybody expects the comet to hit Earth, but we're going to move through its like comet dust. Like imagine the comet's yeah. farting, I guess, through space. And it's got a I mean, crop or dust. just the, the, the trail of like rock and ice that any comet leaves behind it. Yeah. See that? Yeah. yeah. Now, I don't know what we did or did not know about comets in 1920. I'm sure we knew more than I presume. But anyway, the main character, uh, whose name is Jim Davis, which I, <laughs> I know this story was written probably before the creator of Garfield was born. So I don't want to. Maybe his parents named him after Jim Davis from this. <laughs> So, okay, Jim Davis loves lasagna, hates Mondays. This comment is coming in. Hates spiders. I don't think there's anything in the book that says this isn't taking place on a Monday, so it's possible. Wherever it is possible to make this guy canonically Jim Davis, the creator of Garfield, (laughs) I think that you need to make it work. Um. So he is referred to early in the book as the messenger. It's the one of the first... Uh, kind of he spreads the message of Garfield. Far and wide. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm no, sorry. it's fine. It's fine. We're trying to have some fun because it's it's a heavy topic. Even though I think it is a pretty like blunt, it is bluntly handled in this short story here. Um, the messenger Jim, um, when he first gets starts calling, starts getting called the messenger. It's like he works for a bank in New York on Broadway. Maybe he runs messages. Who knows what what that is? Over the course of the story, there's a lot more like biblical language and references to holy or divine things i know from du bois's background that he broke with organized religion kind of early in his life so i don't know that he is like specifically channeling you know one denomination here it is more just kind of connected to this idea of being above our you know base human selves i think um, and he's de- deliberately invoking biblical language because it's very loaded as we get to an Adam and Eve scenario at the end of this story. But mm-hmm. um, Jim works at this bank and the president of the bank is like, hey, could you go in the basement? We left some stuff down there and the basement's kind of flooded. So could you just go down there and get it for me? Um, 
At this point, the story has not explicitly told you that Jim Davis is a black man, again, breaking from the canon of the creation of Garfield. But uh, the Jim Davis in this story is a black man, um, which you learn a little bit later. That's what makes it fiction, I guess. Yeah, I suppose. Um, And I knew coming into my reading of it that that was the case, but I I think it's a little bit ways in before it actually tells you that. Um, He has to go down there. It's clear that he gets the crappy jobs, right? He, it's like that show, good job, crappy, well, crappy jobs, dirty jobs. It's like that dirty show, jobs. dirty jobs. And um, while he's down there in the flooded bank vault, the big vault door slams shut because the comet has flown over New York City. And it's very scary. It's very spooky down there. He has to get his way out of the gunk and the mess. Um, you wouldn't want to be in a flooded you know, underground, under Broadway. Who knows what's down there? Typically, no, I don't think that I would. would not be not be good. He comes up and it is essentially like, you know, in a zombie movie when someone wakes up from a coma and they're like, why are all these people dead? Yes. It's that. Okay. It's, <laughs> and so that I was like... Know, a, I didn't know if you were waiting for an answer from me or not. Yes, I'm always waiting for an answer from you, Andrew. Mm-hmm. Um, it is like that. He comes up, he sees that the bank president is dead, and he's like, oh, crap. If people find me near this dead bank president, I'm going to be in trouble. And then he's like, oh, no, everyone's dead. He manages... If people find me near all these dead people, <laughs> I'm going to be in such gonna be trouble. In trouble. Um, and it is really like a mass extinction event. Um he makes his way to Fifth Avenue. How silent the the street was. Not a soul was stirring, and yet it was high noon. Wall Street, Broadway? He glanced almost wildly up and down, then across the street, and as he looked, a sickening horror froze in his limbs. With a choking cry of utter fright, he lunged, leaned giddily against the cold building, and stared helplessly at the sight. In the great stone doorway, a hundred men and women and children lay crushed and twisted and jammed, forced into that great gaping doorway like refuse in a can, as if in one wild frantic rush to safety they had rushed and ground themselves to death so there's some striking imagery in his like apocalypse stuff sure that i've certainly encountered versions of in your walking deads in take your you know your why the last man you know whatever it might be (laughs) um where all of a sudden a bunch of people are gone or die. It has like a Pompeii quality where a lot of people have died very quickly while they were doing something else. They may or may not have had time to get to safety and a bunch of bad stuff went down. Um, he does pick up a newspaper that says, uh, warnings wired around the world. The comet's tail sweeps past us at noon. Deadly gases expected. Closed doors and windows seek the cellar. So the explanation of what happened to New York City in this story is that the comet flew over Earth, farted deadly gas on everyone, specifically on New York City, (laughs) and our man Jim was underground, so he survived. Anybody else? It feels like of all the people in New York City, he's the only one who found a basement first? Yes. So... Okay. Well, and then he sits on his glasses. Well, well, um, he one of the first things he does is he uh, he is starving. He's you know he's freaked out and he finds himself hungry. He goes to a restaurant and remarks that he would not have been able to eat there if the people running the restaurant were still alive. 
Yes. And that is one of the first explicit references to his race and to his place in America's racist systems. Um, he gets a car. He's driving around the city, finding nobody, casually driving over bodies in a way that's callously horrific <laughs> as you read it. Sure. Um, and then he hears a woman crying from the upper window of her home. Her name is Julia. She's like, oh, my God, I'm up here. What's going on? You're down there in a car that's driving. Someone come help me. And they are each surprised when they find each other that she is a white woman and he is a black man. Um, she had not noticed before that he was a Negro. He had not thought of her as white. Uh, there's also a class difference, of course, because she was in her photography darkroom developing film at the time and remarks later in the story that she doesn't really have a job. She's been idle and her dad runs a bank and he like works in the basement of a bank. So um, coincidence, coincidence. Um, and so when she asks him what's going on, he says something comet or devil swept across the earth again throughout the story. There's a lot of these references to things that are not purely scientific um, even though I think I'll get to my point about that, about why I think maybe Du Bois is taking the piss out of some of that stuff. Okay. Uh, they drive to Harlem to check on his family. He believes that they are dead, uh, or gone. They drive to her father's bank. They find a note that said he was out joyriding someone else's car. Um, no note, <laughs> no idea where he is. That's a weird <laughs> note to leave. That's a weird note. Like, I guess unless you're doing a video game where you're trying to leave just like atmospheric flavor text all around. I don't know why that would be a thing that you would document. It's really convenient and strange. Yeah, I assume they're just like cracking safes and picking up like audio logs all over the New York City to find out the stuff that happened to everybody. They are driving all over the city. They drive. It's beginning to smell. It's gross. Um Oh, yeah, it would be terrible if New York City began to smell. <laughs> Dang, got him. <laughs> um, there's some moments where we are, it's not, you know, it's a close third person, and it shifts back and forth between the two of them. Um, we get some stuff from her close perspective where she says, he did not look like men as she had always pictured men, but he acted like one, and she was content. So over the course of the story, she, more so than he, is like, well, I guess this is the guy that's left on Earth. Maybe I should let the racism go? Like, it's, you know... Because... <laughs> I, I, this is... Mm, okay. this is I'm glad she's getting there, I guess. It's taking a while. It's taking... But that's fine. ...the destruction of the human race as she knows it. But she is thinking... Um, for the first time, she seemed to realize that she was alone in the world with a stranger, with something more than a stranger, with a man, alien in blood and culture, unknown, perhaps unknowable. It was awful. Oh, she must escape. This is after they go to a phone operator's booth, try to call out of New York City and get no answer. And she's like, oh, my God, should I run away? And she realizes that she is too scared to do that. Um, they go to like a cabling station and they have a moment where they look at each other. The vision of a mighty beauty of vast, unspoken things swelled in their souls, but they put it away. They're beginning to come to the conclusion that, yes, we are the only ones here. What are we going to do about that when we actually stop looking for help? Like, what are we going to do when all of our 
because they do a couple different things to try and get help. Finally, they're on the roof of the bank. They have set off some fireworks in hopes of alerting anyone who might be out there. And they have like an exchange about how their lives have been different, about um, they call death the great leveler and the great revealer. And they maybe, maybe they're going to have sex and start the human race again. Nice. They don't say this out loud to each other. But in the close third person, she begins to conceive of herself, no pun intended, as the primal woman bride of life and seeing him as the all-father of the race to be. And as he is looking at her on the roof of this bank, um, he is beginning to shed uh, how the world perceives him. Uh, I liked this quote. Up from the crass and crushing and cringing of his caste leaped the lone majesty of kings long dead. They move toward each other. They lift their hands to one another. He says, the world is dead. And then a car starts honking. <laughs> it's like the, it is like the most de- balloon deflating nonsense <laughs> as the book sets them up to be the new Adam and Eve. And here he is. And then honk, 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 some more fireworks. And then a group of white men show up on the roof elevator and it's her dad, because oh, remember, great. he was joyriding. No good. I'm glad that he's here. And she instantly leaves him, goes to her dad. All the white guys are just saying the N-word and being like, who's this guy? <sighs> and it's pretty rough, because, you know, it was interesting how, like, they were going to literally save the human race. And it was going to be a divine transcendence of uh, racism and terrible things and but then as soon as there was literally any other option that wasn't that yeah. the white lady picked that yeah cool uh-huh. great she does say that he rescued her but she does not look at him again her dad gives him some money to like go away which is really gross um and then the story he they learn that it was not just it was just new york city excuse me that was the only place that got affected um so because he was joy riding he was safe i guess um, and a black woman emerges from the group on the elevator at the end, calling Jim's name and running to him. You might presume that she's his wife. It's not laid out explicitly. Uh, and that's the story. And that's the end. Okay. So the the book has this, as I've been talking about along the way, this like, it is in conversation with a kind of spiritual call for transcendence of humanity at end i think uh, there's a couple spots in this story and essay collection where du bois has written uh like little hymns um and this one has one that has a quote that's like save us from our lesser selves grant us that war and hatred cease reveal our souls in every race and hue um like calling for humanity to literally be better but I, I think that this book, all this story also like pokes a hole in that because they are feeling these divine feelings. She is feeling them. And then like the second that, as you said, it's anything else is there, it all goes away. Like all of that stuff is very flimsy yeah. when it serves the existing hierarchy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and yeah, and then just as a like a bit of speculative fiction or sci-fi kind of stuff, it's this like the notion 
of a potentially equitable world only being made possible through massive catastrophe. <laughs> right. I mean, what I can't think of anything that would have happened in our world recently that would have brought up these kinds of questions. I don't you know? know. I really don't. Um, and as a work of like, you know, black genre fiction, I was just thinking about stuff like Lovecraft Country and um, Jemison's work, but also like Watchmen and stuff where it's like playing in a space. I don't know. It, it's where genre can't and often purposefully doesn't escape the realities of like the world in which it's set or the world in which it's read. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I, I didn't know this story existed. It was kind of cool and sad in the ways I expected it to be sad when I heard about the blurb. Um, sure. But I think it's also interesting as it's like it takes this kind of tropey Odang a Comet premise and it wasn't a comet like like Odang an apocalypse premise but it wasn't like oh it slapped into the earth and everything exploded it was like it came through and gas like there was gas or something yeah. it's just mm-hmm. a little different along the way than I expected which was kind of sure neat. sure sure um so yeah that's the comet by WB okay. Du Bois that's a good story I mean I got some stories to tell you about too but I think we need, unless you have anything else to say, we need to take a break. I have nothing else to say except tell me a story. Okay. All right, let's take a break. Andrew, I heard you like stories. I love stories. Love them. Great. Well, I want to tell you about a podcast called Story Bound. Can, Great. Can I? <laughs> Yes, please do. It's a show that features the voices of today's top literary icons reading their essays, poems, and fiction. In each episode of Storybound, listeners will be treated to their favorite authors and writers reading some of their most impactful stories. Designed with powerful and immersive sound environments, the show features readings from Mitch Album, Stephanie Dandler, Lauren Groff, Tommy Orange, and more. Storybound is brought to you by the Podglomerate and Lit Hub Radio. Season 3 just launched, I think, back in December, and you can listen today by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to our show. I'm going to do that right now. Please do. You're bound for stories. Yeah, see you later. Bye. (laughs) Andrew, you read a story this week. I did. I did read a story. Would you tell me about it? My story was a lot of stories, actually. My story was four stories. So I did four times as much work as you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have talked about Ursula K. Le Guin before, yes? We have, yes. So um, we, back in episode 282, uh, one of us, I honestly... I think it was you. Goodness, cannot remember which of us did read The Dispossessed I believe by it Ursula was K. Le Guin. Yeah. All right. I have to go back and listen. Citation needed. Um, uh, but she was... Born in 1929 and died in 2018. I think that's why we read that book when we read it, actually. Oh, yeah. Because I had read read The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelis like 100 episodes before, but we had not read one of That was another short story. Yes. Yes. Um, So she was an American author and she was was well known for her fantasy and sci-fi work. Best known series include the the Hainish uh, series, which is where the the Deepossessed, the Dispossessed comes from. And then also the uh, Wizard of Earthsea fantasy Uh, series. Yes. Yes. Uh So if you've heard of her, it is probably from that. If you go back to the Dispossessed, uh, we talk about her a little bit more. 
Yes. Uh, but yeah, so this uh, book, like I said up top, is called uh, Woeful Tales from Mahigul. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I tried to find something, and I think you are just going to have to put That's up what it with it. You said it was uh, from the collection it. Changing Planes, right? Yes, Changing Planes, which came out in 2003 and uh, won a 2004 Locus Award for Best Collection. Um, a lot of these short stories had appeared in other publications before, but they were gathered together in this book, uh, which is themed around this like frame narrative of like the the narrator is telling you stories from different like planes of existence. Uh-huh. And the reason why we can travel between these planes is because while people were waiting at the airport, being bored, like waiting between flights, they discovered that if you like moved your hands in just just a specific way, you could instantly travel between where you were and another plane. And so it's about it's okay. called Changing Planes. And it's kind of about planes, but it's also about planes of existence. Love it. I gr- love a pun with multiple uses. Okay. Yeah, but it's just a big old group of short stories, not really interconnected by any particular thread. It's just a bunch of, like, imagine Ursula K. Le Guin doing a bunch of, like, creative writing class world building prompts and yeah. you gather them all together and that's changing planes. it's a mini game collection it it's Wii Sports yeah. but a book sure it, yeah just like Wii Sports and I don't mean that pejoratively Wii Sports rules it's like WarioWare but for literature Ooh. no that's more like a poem <laughs> chat book but yeah I get what you're saying just in terms of the quantity of things on offer here I think it's more like WarioWare yeah fair enough okay please yeah tell me about this yeah. story so uh, this is this is a frame narrative within the overarching like airport plane traveler sure <laughs> narrative. Uh, someone is telling us when when they come to Michael, they like to uh, hang out at the library, and they talk about how the library is a, it's it's very lush and verdant and cool and comfortable, and it's just a great place to hang. And so when they when they're here, they like to go to the library. And uh, they like to read fiction or history, and they say history usually because the history of Michael outdoes the fiction of many other places. It is a sad and violent history, but in so sweet and lenient a place as the reading gardens, it seems both possible and wise to open one's heart to folly, pain, and sorrow. These are a few of the stories I've read sitting in the mild autumn sunlight on the grassy edge of a stream or in the deep shade of a silent secret little patio or a hot summer on a hot summer afternoon in the library of Michael. Okay. Are you ready for some stories? I am ready for multiple stories. You told me that there would be more than one. The first story is about this guy, Dawado, Dawado the Innumerable. Hell yeah. D-A-W-O-D-O-W. Dawado. Yeah. You could come up with different ways to pronounce this for the entire rest of the episode. Uh, but yeah, so he was the 50th emperor of the fourth dynasty of Michael. Of course he was. And this guy was like, make more statues of me. Yeah. Okay. All the statues that exist of all the other emperors that exist all around this empire, change a movie about me instead, and then make a bunch of other statues and also make them of me. And so you get every city and every little town throughout this entire empire has like even the littlest, tiniest little thatched roof cottages have like 10 statues of this guy <laughs> and sometimes he go he likes to go incognito 
and he likes to walk around to the statues and he likes to talk about how stupid they are. What? The emperor would go about in the streets and plazas of the capital and stop at every image or group of images of himself. He would jeer softly at the statues, insulting them in a whisper, calling them coward, fool, cuckold, impotent, idiot. He would spit on a statue as he passed it. And Craig, I need you to hold on to your butts for this. He, if, if he saw no one else in the plaza, he would stop and piss on the statue or piss on earth to make mud. And then taking this mud in his hand, rub it on the face of the image of himself and over the inscription extolling the glories of his reign. If a citizen reported next day that he had seen an image of the emperor defiled in this way, the guards would arrest a countryman or a foreigner, anyone who came to hand. If nobody else was convenient, they arrested the citizen who had reported the crime, accused him of sacrilege, and torture him until he died or confessed. So this is just this whole story, which is basically over at this point, is just about this emperor who wants lots of statues of himself to be made to glorify himself but then he wants to walk around and rub pea mud in their faces and talk about how bad they are. Is and he, I feel like this but, is this is what people think of me versus what I think of me. <laughs> like, I think all of our subconsciousnesses are just walking around like rubbing pea mud on our faces because we aren't good bad. enough. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And other and people maybe are that's like, not but everybody. I built a statue maybe that's just of me. you. Yeah. And you're like, no, I'm going to put pea mud on this statue because mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. like it. Wait, yeah. is there a part where he says why he's putting the pea mud on the statues? No. He's not explicitly trying to use it to wipe out dissidents. No. <laughs> he reigned for 37 years. He was garroted in his privy by his great nephew, Danda. Okay, Emperor P. Mud, go off. I don't know. Like, <laughs> what is this guy's deal? How so it... that's the first story. Okay, what? How does that bleed into the next story? Does it bleed into the next? It story? It doesn't. It's just here's another story about the, the, the my goal, this wonderful place. Sick. All right. Well, so, okay. So it's telling us something a little bit about how power works in Mahi Goal, which is it's very public, and also you could get very private about it and rub your pea mud on it. You're reading a little too much into the amount of like continuous world building that the story is trying Mokido. to do but sure sure uh this is a uh this story called the cleansing of ob tree is a little bit heavier it's not about guy rama pimod on a statues um it is a story about like a province of the mahigol empire and um it is about these two different peoples the astasa and the sosa not okay. Sammy Sosa. It's just the Sosa. Just the, the Sosa. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they both move into this same sort of plot of land, and they are very different from each other, but they basically get along for a while. Uh, the Astasa opinion of the Sosa was that they were slow, dense, deceitful, and indefatigable. How do you pronounce indefatigable? In- indefatigable. Indefatigable. Yep. Huh. Okay, the Sosa opinion of the They took that they U were... out of the word and it changed how everything functions. <laughs> yeah, the Sosa opinion of the Astasa was that they were quick, clever, candid, and unpredictable. Uh, but what happens is the uh, Sosa, I believe, uh, have big old families and they just have 12th and 13th and 15th kids. And the Astasa have smaller families, like two or three kids. And eventually the Sosa become so much 
more numerically than the Astasa that some like populist political leader comes to power and tries to wipe all of them out, like ev- everybody who's not a Sosa out. Mm. And they are all fighting each other. And then an outside kingdom comes in and finding very little resistance because everybody's basically killed each other. They take over the kingdom and, and then it just becomes absorbed into this Mahigol empire. And the only uh, people who, the only way to win this game is not to play. Only the Tayob people far up in the mountains re- remained much as they had always been. Poor herdsfolk with no religion worth fighting over. The anonymous author of the great mystical poem, The Ascent, a work which has made the province of Obtree famous on more than one plane, was a Tayob. Huh. I like, that, I like that there are references to in fiction like legends and writings about it that's fun that's always fun to yeah it's all like there was a um the introduction to this short story collection written by karen joy fowler is talks a little bit about the uh just the the way this book hits you when you Mm. read all these stories sure Uh, she says i don't claim that it's uh, Le Guin's best or most influential or the most likely to be the subject of papers and study or the most likely to survive the next hundred years i can't even claim that it's the Le Guin book that had the greatest impact on me uh, that would surely be the left hand of darkness. And yet it remains my favorite. It overflows with all those things I love in my Le Guin books, the wit, the wisdom, the wielding of language, the intermingling of the grim and the playful and the absolutely stunning surfeit of imagination. Changing planes is a virtuoso display of world creation, a brilliant Gulliver-ish travelogue of a book. Mm-hmm. And I totally like even with with the, the stories within stories of this, where they're all ostensibly taking place in the same like empire, but have no real like through line. Yeah. You are just getting a cool story prompt that then you you could use to craft this much bigger world or book if you wanted to, but Le Guin's just kind of dashing them off well, and not it, thinking about them that much. I, I'm interested to hear about the next two because it's like, if you look at the four of them, you're like, well, what kind of place could contain these four stories? What And what kind of place could contain these four stories and then also would become just like a cool, chill, peaceful place with a nice library at the end of the day? <laughs> Like where do you, how do you get from here to there is sure. the question that I don't think you really get resolved for you in the well, course of these stories. Yeah, that's stories. the game that you play at home. All right, hit me with story yeah. three. Story number three, The Black Dog. Whoa, I love this that song. Two... That's a great Led Zeppelin song. <laughs> this is about a couple tribes, uh, the Hoa and the Farim. Uh, they grow up in these two separate villages, and every once in a while, they just kind of fight each other. Yeah. And, you know, some people would die, but both sides go back home with, you know, a couple of their the bodies of their slain enemies and they each declare victory and everybody gets to be happy. And because everybody feels like they won, it's like another like uh, six months or a year before it has to happen again. People have kind of achieved an equilibrium, I guess you might say. Sure, you might. But then to once to one of these battles, the Hoa, they bring this big old black dog. It's a big dog. Its back was as high as a man's waist, and its head was massive. It ran in leaps and bounds, its eyes gleamed red, foam slathered from its gaping, long-toothed jaws, and it growled hideously. Um, and this dog, like, goes to town on all of the Farim. It kills the war chief. It chews up his bones and leaves only gnawed bones. <laughs> And it kills a bunch of people and the Farim get driven back to their village and they are like, wait a minute, this went bad. We lost this one. 
we lost this one, gang. Yeah, like Hatfields and McCoys, all of a sudden the McCoys had a big dog. Yeah, except they, <laughs> if they have a big black dog. Um, and it's like World War One, where there's trench warfare, except there's a big black like, dog. French got a big black dog. <laughs> how do you say dog in French? Um, oh, how do you say dog in French? Chien? Le chien? Le chien le, noir? Well, oh, le gros chien noir? <laughs> in la trench <laughs> that's so a lot of french people lost their lives over one that's really bad la trench uh and the farim try to attack the hoa again and this big dog like drives them off and makes them crawl back to their village and this is becoming untenable okay but then the big black dog comes to the Hoa tribe and they're like, let's we and then they feed the big black dog some food. It's like, hey, this black dog's wait, wait, wait. No, I'm getting I'm getting things mixed up. He comes, the big black dog comes and helps the Hoa. Okay. Um, and he he kills the he fights a bunch of the Freeman and kills them. And then they're like, Man, we didn't win this one either. Now we got oh man, this big black dog. <laughs> Is really cramping our style. Wait, who and does so, the big black dog work for? I don't know who the big black dog works for. But so what happens is the women of each tribe who they all the women of each tribe speak the same language as each other, while the men like speak different languages of each other. So the Sick. women form this sort of like underclass backbone of the society where they talk to each other and they're like, hey, what's the deal with this big black dog? <laughs> and they all band together and they feed the big black dog poison food and they kill the big black dog. No. Well, not no, because then everything goes back to normal and everybody can be happy again. I was kind of a fan of the big black dog, though. Mm, big black dog seems like kind of a jerk. Ever thereafter, the Farim raided the Hoa and the Hoda raided, raided the Farim at reasonable intervals and they fought to the death on the traditional and customary battlefields and came home victorious with their dead who watched the warriors dance the victory dance and were satisfied. So really, this was a patch that affected each tribe where they got where each one got a little bit more stronger than the other one for a little while. And then they rolled the patch back. The big, they rolled the patch <laughs> all, back. None they of got, the players they patched out the They patched out the big black dog <laughs> and then all was well again. Okay, sure. It's about imbalance and power conflicts. Dig it. I dig it. Yeah. 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 Okay. I did. This I also, one, you could just, we could spend an hour where you just say pig black dog to me a bunch and I'm going to enjoy it. <laughs> I don't even think that's how the story, like, it Refer- tells about how big he is and calls him the black dog, capital B, capital G. But yeah. Dig it. <laughs> all right, hit me with story number four. Let's close it out. So, story number four, I mean, they're all good. And as I tell you about them, I appreciate them more. They're but, all uh, your children. One, this one might be my favorite. Okay. I mean, I don't play favorites, but okay. this one might be my sure. favorite. This is called The War Across the Elon. Okay. Uh, this is about two city-states, uh, Mayun and Hoi. Uh, they are, you know, they're rivals, but they they uh, live sort of next to each other. And they both think that they, through like divine right, have claim to this tiny little narrow strip of land. It is made clear several times that this is like... It includes this river, but it's like half a mile wide and a couple miles long, but it's the only overlap and they continue fighting over it over and over and over again. Yeah, I've never heard of that in the news. Sure. 
Yeah, so one of the sides invents dynamite, and they blow the riverbank up, and they divert the river so it goes on their territory. And then they go over to the other side, and they're like, hey, you know, let's let bygones be bygones. We're fine with how everything is right now. It's okay. Like, let's just let's just make peace, and it'll be fine. And this begins this, like, war of attrition where each side keeps blowing up this tract of land and diverting and re-diverting the river until many, many years later. (laughs) uh, Henceforth, the territorialism of the two city-states was expressed almost entirely in explosions. Whoa. Though many soldiers and citizens and a great many cows were killed as technological improvements led to ever more powerful agents of destruction, which could blow up ever larger quantities of earth. These changes, these charges were never planted as mines with the intention of killing. Their sole purpose was to fulfill the great aim of Mayun and Hoy to change the course of the river. So for a hundred years, they just blow this thing up. Sick. Yeah, it makes sense. And at the end of a hundred years... They have blown this gigantic canyon into the ground, a canyon that each of their cities is actually getting dangerously close to. Oh, no. (laughs) And so what happens now is that like half of Mayun falls into the canyon. Mm. And then they're like, hey, gang, we got to stop this. But then everybody turns out okay at the end because everybody wants to come see the great city of Mayun, which is like half fallen into this canyon. But when they do it, they want to stay in the city of Hoi, which has better hotels and food service. <laughs> is that true? Yeah. And have and, and Hoi, has they have no more cows or pastures, but they live off tourists. Oops. Man. What is left of Mayun has the advantage of a dramatic and picturesque site, which attracts thousands of visitors every year. But most of the visitors actually stay in Hoi, where the food is better, and which is only a very short stroll from the East Rim with its marvelous views of the canyon and the half-buried ruins of old Mayun. Tourist and service economies for the win, I suppose. Yeah, I guess. Like, they used to have resources, but now they just have stuff that looks cool that people won't come see. So when that story... It's the story of the American West. Why, why was this story your favorite, Andrew? I just like the I I just like the idea of them blowing up this big canyon in the earth until one of the cities falls into it and then they come to a mutually agreeable solution to the big problem that they made. Sure. Okay. But I, mean, I know you like the big black dog one the best because I kept saying big black dog. Yes. Yeah, cool. I like that. Does is there a uh, is there like a rapper at the end of this? And no. by, I don't mean like common. I mean like No. <laughs> okay. No, that's the end. Then it goes into the next story. And it goes into the next story. Okay. Yeah. Um, cool. So I don't know that there's like a lesson except the thing that we talked about earlier where you just get to sit and wonder how the civilizations pictured here develop into the one that you see in the frame narrative at the beginning of the book. Sure, 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 sure. But each of these four stories just takes an idea and like runs with it and then doesn't have to think about the aftermath in a way that I think is nice. Like it's not like a 300 page thing where you have to like delve into the ruins of old Mayun or like find out where this big black dog came from. And Oh, maybe he came from a third tribe and he's trying to play the two tribes against each other. Like, no, no, stop it. About how long would you say each story was? Oh, just a few pages. This whole, this whole run of book is like 20 pages long. Okay. Sure. 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 Yeah. I think, I think the comet was, probably 25 or 30 pages total so like yeah these sound like they are 
kind of like little essays, little creative essays about how a thing so might many, go down. You get so many like visually memorable things. You get the, you know, the half collapsed city into the into the canyon. You get the big black dog. You get the emperor who rubs his own pea mud on his, the face of his own statues. Yeah, uh-huh. Going to be thinking about that one. Yeah, you're going to be thinking about that one. <laughs> it doesn't seem character driven except for the emperor though. It no. seems like place is it yeah, it's like historical records as short story more. Yeah, def- definitely definitely because okay. you don't um you don't get to know individuals other than Emperor P-Mud. Emperor P-Mud. That's his name now, whether or not he he's going to have to wipe P-Mud on our podcast cuz he's upset about how we've <laughs> depicted him. Well, if he didn't want us to do that, he wouldn't have rubbed peanut all over his statue. That's no true. Way. He earned yep. it. That's true. He did. Um, well, thanks for telling me about those stories, Andrew. I'm glad that you had a good time reading them. You're welcome. It was fun. Yeah. Um, I would like, I mean, if any of the stories are as good as those four, I think I should probably go back and read more of them. But, yes. You know, yes. Um, time is finite. This is a fun opportunity for us to tell our listeners, go read some more W.E.B. Du Bois, go read some more. Ursula K. Le Guin, put him in your rotation. We had some fun this week. Um, if you want to know what, if you want to email us about the stories we read, you can send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter and Facebook at overduepod. Twitter and Facebook, I said those. Um, thanks to Melissa James, Lana Alak, Alax. Alex is what I meant to say. <laughs> Tasha, Gonzo, Starfish Chick, Annabelle, Tom, Rebecca, Kyle, Liam, and more for reaching out to us this week. Our theme song is by Nick Larangis. Thank you, Nick. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where do they go? Overduepodcast.com is our internet website. Up there, we have links to Apple Podcasts and Google and our RSS feed. And we're also on Stitcher and Spotify. Uh, if you subscribe through Apple Podcasts, do rate and review us if you have something good to say. If you don't, I don't know, maybe just forget. Maybe just forget to do it this week. <laughs> Go to Bapple Podcast and put it yeah, there. Yeah, like we love a constructive review, but like maybe forget to do it for a little bit. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, we also have links to the books that we have read and are going to read and a link to our Patreon po- project, patreon.com slash overdue pod. We are just posting the first in our Jagged Little Mill series about uh, the Edith Grossman translation of Don Quixote by Miguel de Cervantes. Yep. I feel like we're going to centralize on one pronunciation of that one of these days. There's a lot of things to say when we say that. And after a few episodes, we can just say Jagged Little Mill Don Quixote and we'll get out of there. Yeah. And then, Craig, you want to hit them with our February schedule? Yeah. It's February, gang. This week in February, uh, we did Short Story Week, which was a holiday that I made up. And then next week, Andrew's going to tell us about The Ziggurat by Gene Wolfe. After that, I'm going to tell you about The Stone Sky, Broken Earth number 3 by N.K. Jemison. We're going to close out the month of February with A Promised Land by Barack Hussein Obama. Uh, our friend Camille is going to join us for that one. And we do have a bonus episode this month in addition to the Don Quixote work. We're going to do a Q&A episode. We haven't done one in a few years. Uh, so you can go back and find those. I'll, t- I'll put it on internet what those episodes are if you want to look yeah, at it. Yeah, you put it. You put it on internet. But <laughs> idiot, <laughs> you can email us uh, with Q and A in the subject header if you want that considered. Um, but go back and listen to those episodes first. 
So we're probably we're gonna try not to answer questions twice. Come on. Yeah, like you guys deserve no more and no less. <laughs> yeah. Um so yeah, next week is the ziggurat. Um tune in for that one. Andrew, get us out of here. All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another week. And until we talk to you next time, please try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.